0: You're listening to episode 385
1: of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, folks. Did you think we fell off the planet or stopped doing recording or stuff? Well, you can blame little old me. Um, I have spent the last month of October running around at the museum for um, the museum's 25th anniversary and basically had no time to... um, do one of the joys of my life, which is podcasting and I've left left Max in the lurch, but he was traveling so we were being lazy and making excuses so but we're back and hopefully we'll be back consistently but it's it's good to be recording again, Max. It is absolutely David and I
0: hope we remember how to do this because <laughs> it's been a while.
1: yeah well we'll we'll see. but let's see let's talk about drones and fair chase autonomous agile flight, thermal mapping to reduce heat loss, trick or treats. Where's the Amazon delivery drones we were promised? UAS over wildfires and a lank update, or lance update. See, we've forgotten how to say the words. <laughs> so I guess we should get started. What do you think, Max? David, I'm eager to get started. So, our first story comes from the sunjournal.com. Outdoors in Maine, drones in the woods, and the ethical debate over whether they belong. So, can hunters use drones to locate game? And if they can, yes, should they? That's the question.
0: This is a question that I hadn't really contemplated before, David, and especially because I'm not a hunter, but the law in Maine apparently says, no, you can't use drones. Uh, And this falls under Title 12, Section 11216, Hunting with Aid of Aircraft. And it says simply, and this is a, a quote from the law, a person on the ground or airborne may not use an aircraft to aid or assist in hunting bear, deer, or moose. And then a subsequent section defines aircraft. They're defined as a machine or device designed for flight. So I would say that a drone falls under that definition. And so in Maine, uh, the law is, no, you can't use a drone. Now, you can see why hunters might want to utilize a, a drone, this capability, to uh, you know go on up in the air and scout around and look for game or look for good places, potential places to set up uh, your your spot to hunt. I mean, I would imagine it's being, a you know, a really attractive tool to those who hunt.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, and, and fishing. And, I mean, it's it's an observation post. It's the reason why you sit in trees when you hunt deer so you have a better view. You could use your drones to chase the ducks out the pond to get them to go flying so you can... So, But, yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting aspect that, you know, you can't use... Now, it says... Bear, deer, or moose. Now, if you're a rabbit hunter, it looks like you're perfectly fine to go after the um, little bunnies with your with your shotgun and your drone. But what I want to know, Max, is we, we're talking about Maine and hunting. Does Connecticut allow drones being used for hunting? You know, because you do tend to attach guns to them in that state of yours. Yeah, at least one teenager. I wonder what
0: ever happened to that guy. That'd be worth finding out. But yeah, no, I don't know what the law is in Connecticut. Uh, The article does mention that in 2014, Colorado actually became the first state to outlaw the use of drones. This is for scouting, hunting, and taking wildlife. So Colorado says no drone, uh, no scouting with a drone. Maine doesn't specifically say that you can't, so, so I don't know, but... In addition to the law, that question, there's the, the ethical question. So this term, fair chase, comes up. And there's actually a, a Wikipedia page, no surprise. And it, uh, it describes that this, uh, this term, fair chase, is a term used by hunters to describe an ethical approach to hunting big game animals. North America's oldest wildlife conservation group, the Boone and Crockett Club, defines fair chase as requiring the targeted game animal to be wild and free-ranging. Wild refers to an animal that is naturally bred and lives freely in nature. Free-ranging means an animal that is not restrained by traps or artificial barriers, so it has a fair chance of successfully escaping from the hunt. And then one, one more statement there. Fair chase has been the honor code of North American hunters for over a century and the principle underlying many hunting laws and is taught to new hunters in hunter certification courses. And in fact, that Boone and Crockett club that they mentioned, which is something I never heard about, but I've learned more about in the last couple of days, uh, Fair Chase is actually a registered trademark to that club. But the article uh, does mention that, I, I guess that club, that organization, is the organization that certifies records and things like that. And uh, I understand that they've said that if the kill, if if I can use that word, if the kill uh, was accomplished with the use of a drone, then they won't certify
1: the record. Very interesting. As an observation post, a drone is great. But, you know, I was thinking, Max, practical. I'm, I'm wondering if a drone doesn't scare the animals. Considering how noisy they are and how many times we've seen animals react to the drone, like take it out of the sky. Um, it, it's sort of interesting, it's interesting notion that maybe it probably wouldn't work as well as people think it would, you know, so we'll have to see. But, you know, I really wanted to call this week's episode into the woods because it seemed like there was a lot of, a <laughs> lot of forestry involved with this. Next thing was from ZDNet. watch these autonomous drones rip through the woods. Rapid autonomous flight is complex and changing environments is difficult. So we have a bunch of drones pretending they are are an ender flying uh, speeder bikes as they go zipping through forests.
0: If you have an area like a forest or something with a lot of obstacles, something that's, that's pretty complex or something that's changing, it's difficult to fly a drone through that fast. And it turns out that Really skilled human pilots are better at that than autonomous drones. So the software isn't really good enough to achieve the kinds of speeds through that type of an environment. Well, univ- uh, researchers at the University of Zurich, in in conjunction with Intel Labs, is looking at this. And what they're doing is they're training drones using simulation techniques to imitate expert human pilots, and that's what they call autonomous agile flight. The quote from the lead of the embodied AI lab at Intel said that the trained autonomous drone was able to fly through previously unseen environments, such as forests, buildings and trains, keeping speeds up to 40 kilometers an hour without crashing into trees, walls, or other obstacles, all while relying on its onboard cameras only, and computation. This is fascinating to me. This is AI. The drone's neural network is learning from the pilot, the human pilot. And it's called a privileged expert because the pilot uh, flew a virtual drone through a simulated environment that was full of complex obstacles. But the drone had less information than the human pilot. So this neural network had to learn how to fly through this environment at high speeds. I, this is just really fascinating.
1: But it is kind of gratifying, Max, that us humans still can do some things better than artificial intelligence. For now. For now. But um, so, the, I mean, that's, that's an interesting aspect. And I have taken to watching the Drone Racing League on television. And the the skill in which those pilots fly those courses is kind of phenomenal. And um, the fact that they are thinking ahead, you know, I'm not sure if the AI has gotten to that point yet where they're thinking a couple of moves ahead on their flight. As they're going through one obstacle, they're setting up their positioning for the second and third obstacle, which is really kind of cool. So there
0: is a uh, video of this and we'll have that in the show notes that is really quite remarkable. Um, and we'll also have a, a link to the project webpage. But this, this video is, is really worth uh, watching and the, the speed with which this drone flies through the f- uh, forest and avoiding trees and uh, o- other obstacles is, um, is is really quite amazing at the speed that this thing is flying. And without this kind of intelligent autonomy, you know, a drone would just never be able to do that. And, you know, I can envision a number of applications where you'd want to have this capability of flying at these kinds of speeds. The other thing that I that I wonder about is just the, the computational horsepower required. I don't know what CPU they're, they've got on the drone that's uh, performing the calculations but uh, it, it must be pretty impressive. But the video shows um, an interesting perspective uh, when, you, when you see the drone and you see tree trunks in the way. You can, at one point in the video, see how the drone is, as it's in flight, is uh, processing different alternative uh, strategies for avoiding the, you know, avoiding the obstacle and then picking one. You know, if it's moving slowly, I could see how this could be done. But moving at these speeds,
1: it's kind of amazing. So it's it's worth it to take a look at this video, I think. And, you know, what what do you use to heat houses? Wood. But what happens if your house is leaking energy? In Warren, Minnesota, they're using drones and thermal sensors to map its heat-leaking homes. And this was from Drone DJ. Minnesota town of Warren is using a drone to help residents cut their energy costs. Perfectly good use for a drone with a thermal camera, huh?
0: It really does sound like a no-brainer. Um, so this comes about because the town of Warren is a member of something called the Climate Smart Municipalities Partnership. And this is fascinating. This, this is where cities in Minnesota and Germany work together on sustainability and climate initiatives. So Warren in Minnesota partners up with the town of Arnsberg in Germany. And as you said, David, they used a thermal sensor equipped drone and they produced a a municipal map that shows the insulating inefficiencies of structures and the loss of heat coming from them. But they had some resources that they drew upon because they didn't really have a budget to do this, I guess, but it turned out that there were resources close by.
1: Yeah, um, Northland Community College um, has a drone program, and the pilots and the drones came from the college. There were l- some limitations on the program; it had to be cold enough for the building heating systems to be on. I mean, it's Minnesota. How hard can that be? <laughs> Not too cold as to hamper the drone battery life. That could be a pro- that I could see be a problem in Minnesota. Not too windy, Eh, and flights at night so the sensors didn't pick up warming of rooftops by sunlight, which, hadn't thought of that, but that makes, I guess that's more along, so you're flying at night and you're flying beyond visual line of sight. So, two interesting aspects to that. So, after they built this thermal map of
0: the town, uh, you know, residents had the opportunity to see what their home or business or whatever looked like and the degree to which it was leaking heat and they, they were given the opportunity if they wanted I mean, there was nobody was being forced or anything but if they wanted to they could use that information and take some steps and in fact some grants were available to residents that wanted to run with this and try to reduce their energy costs so uh, this sounds like a terrific program I understand some other cities around the country have caught wind of this and are interested in, in learning from Warren and implementing them in their own, uh, in their own towns. I, I think this is something that would be uh, really advantageous to a number of communities that are interested in reducing their energy consumption.
1: So you're saying it's a hot program, Max? It's really hot. After all these years, I would love to see the thermodynamics on your farmhouse.
0: Oh, this thing is leaky as...
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, built 1835, roughly. It's an old leaky house. Well, we are recording this the first week in November, but I I thought we should at least mention um, Halloween and trick-or-treating, and... Drone DJ, again, um, has a compilation of drone videos and photos, including a drone light show in Dallas, of various events that occurred during the spookiest night of the year. They did kind of pull together a really
0: interesting collection of uh, of videos and also some stills, but uh, they had things like the flying witch drones. That's something we've seen in the past, and I think that's a crowd favorite, you dress up a little drone as a as a witch, and then, or a ghost, or a ghost, and and use that to terrorize the children and the adults, I guess. <laughs> That's pretty unexpected. And they had uh, some uh, examples of trick or treating robots and some robots that had costumes on it. But um, David, this youngster in Australia, I thought this was pretty hysterical.
1: Yeah, he got dressed up as a wing delivery drone that's you know? great i love it but you know he was picking up packages i mean or candy not delivering them right um there was a drone show in dallas uh with 150 drones and some others so definitely check out the link in the show notes it's definitely worthwhile even though we're just slightly past um halloween it's a good way to revisit you know and quite a interesting uses of drones where you probably wouldn't might not have thought of it's fun
0: and you know what it might give people some ideas so that they can start planning for next year
1: yeah absolutely that brings us to a segue it's let's talk about planning where what we thought was being planned or and what we were told was going to happen but didn't it's 2021. What happened to drone delivery? Amazon was supposed to start by 2018, and here's what happened instead. This is from time.com. Back in 2013, Amazon announced an experimental drone delivery service. I remember that. Do you remember that, Max? Of course. We were all excited about that, weren't we? We were. But it's almost 2022 and no drone delivery service. So the article um, kind of addresses that.
0: Mostly towards the end. Um, There's a lot of uh, discussion or explanation of uh, how drones have been used and sort of what's transpired. But uh, they note that uh, Amazon Prime Air is still committed to delivering packages by drones, according to their statements. But they do say, quote, we are pioneering new ground and it will continue to take time To create the right technology and infrastructure to safely deliver packages to customers so i think one of the answers to why is it taking so long is that it's taking a long time to figure out
1: just how do you do this there have been hurdles that weren't foreseen back in the early days in 2013 it seemed like you just got a drone it carried things and it Took off and it landed, and it seemed a very simple process. But if you've listened to this show and, and you're in the, involved with the industry, you know that it's not. One of the things it says is it's been paced by the FAA, you know, and the FAA has been very slow to per, or very, very deliberate to protect its airspace. So permissions and things haven't gone exactly the way. Amazon expected or anyone else expected
0: and I wonder if they just didn't know you know the Amazon's the Google's the so you know so forth just didn't know uh, because you're talking about technology companies that are used to getting an idea and going executing out it. executing it implement it if it doesn't work quite right then modify it there's always version 2.0 and if that doesn't work 3.0 and and so forth and i wonder if they just didn't have a full appreciation for the regulatory environment that they were in and the you know the way that the faa has historically worked which is to you know be slow and methodical and the goal is safety not how do we get this
1: technology out there as fast as possible i think that's right that there's there was a there's a cultural clash between things like Facebook and Google and Alphabet and Prime and they are a get-it-done-now kind of thing, whereas there's a culture in the FAA where it's, yeah, you can do that, but you're risking the lives of thousands of people or millions of people or whatever, and they're not going to jeopardize their safety. So clearly, it's going to happen. It's just it was a bit pie in the sky. And when it comes to the practical notions of everything, it's not the way it was expected to be.
0: And there's also the issue of, uh, you know, being kind of blinded by the possibilities and not thinking about the, the details, uh, the implications, what has to be in place in order to pull it off. Uh, you, you know, I think people, uh, you know, I think myself included, <laughs> In the early days, were just so excited about the possibilities that you know you didn't think
1: about the practicality. The practicalities of it, right? The, the love of my life is um, constantly reminding me that it's just not practical. So, yeah, I mean, it's coming. But Max, if it had already happened, we'd still have we would have nothing to talk about. Oh, a lot less to talk about, that's for sure. Huh. So let's talk about a rotor-fixed wing drone that used extensively over the Schneider Springs file. And this is from um, the Aviation.com, FireAviation.com. In August and September, Schneider Springs fire in Washington burned more than 107,000 acres. L3 Latitude Engineer's EVR-90 unmanned aircraft was used to monitor the fire. This is becoming more the norm. It is. And uh, this story and the next
0: one relate to the use of UAS during this fire. And they talk about some really different applications. But in in this article, they talk about this FVR-90. It's an eVTOL, basically, for electrically-powered rotors to take off and land. And then it transitions to horizontal flight. There's a rear-mounted propeller that's got a gas-powered engine. And it's quite capable. It's also it's pretty large too, but it, it can fly for up to twelve hours. Can fly at an altitude of ten to twelve thousand feet. And what they use it for during this fire was with uh, video cameras, the usual uh, visual video cameras, but also some heat sensing infrared sensors. And they use it to to map the fires uh, and transmit images to the ground in real time. There's a video about this that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But in that video, I'm pretty sure I heard them say that there was a Zoom link as as part of this, so that those who were involved, in, you know, in the firefighting effort, and I imagine there were large numbers of them, uh, I guess they could they could watch the uh, you know the view from the drone in real time, um, and they flew this primarily um, at night when other other aircraft
1: couldn't be flying. And it's easier to detect fires. It, well, it's it's the same reason why we weren't looking at roofs in Minnesota during the day. Exactly,
0: and so of course they had a, a special authorization granted from the FAA to fly the aircraft BV Loss within this temporary flight restriction, this TFR. And so, yeah, I mentioned the video. Uh, the video is really fascinating. I thought this was a uh, it was a great video, and you get to see. You know how they did this, and of course the uh, the drone itself, and how it contributed uh, in, in a really valuable way to this uh, this firefighting effort.
1: Yeah, it's nice to hear drones helping the situation instead of preventing aircraft from flying. Mm. And our second story also comes from Fireaviation dot com. Unmanned aircraft on wildfires. What have we learned? Incident management teams used other drones on the Schneider Springs fires, like one was a Type 3 UAS, was used at night for plastic sphere dispensing, burning operations. So, in other words, firebombing or setting a fire line to stop the fire. This is pretty cool. I, did we talk about this once? This
0: is where you have this plastic sphere and glycol is inserted into the plastic sphere that's got potassium permanganate in it. And then the, uh, the sphere is released from the drone. And then you get this exothermic reaction that ignites on the ground. And th- this is where you are trying to... Um, stop fire with fire. Stop fire with fire, right. Controlled burns, I guess, is maybe the, the, the phrase I'm thinking of. So this UAS was used for that purpose uh, um, primarily. And it was particularly useful because this drone could get into areas of the fire where other aircraft uh, couldn't go or areas that had so much smoke that other aircraft couldn't fly in there. Uh, So that was uh, apparently really effective. And so... Uh, the article describes some benefits of using these uh, these drones and some challenges as well but some of the benefits including uh, included having better intel uh, able to manage risk by limiting exposure uh, the uas were quite useful for identifying spot fires and uh, smoke was not a limiting factor during this psd uh, or recon operations other things, uh, reducing human exposure. The UAS could cover a lot more ground than a person on foot. That's, that's kind of an obvious one. And being able to use them uh, during night, uh, night operations, meant no conflict with other aircraft. So those were some of the, the benefits of using UAS in this firefighting mode that they mentioned. But they also uh, identified a few challenges as well.
1: Yeah, and some of these are fairly obvious. Some of them are um, not so obvious. More aircraft increase increases the coordination of the workload. Air operations and ground operations must coordinate on priorities incidents. There were only a few UAS modules available. Not knowing what products the UAS can provide, having no set standards. So that's that's kind of important. Um, for the type one UAS, can take 24 to 48 hours to get it running on an incident due to FAA approvals, TFRs, landing and recovery zones, land use agreements, mission safety, pilots, etc. I guess looking at that, it means um, you need to start doing some pre-planning ahead of time for those UAS availability is a limitation. There are not enough pilots or aircraft. The limited flight times um the type 3 drone is anywhere from a 15 to 25 minute flight time depending upon the payload so i mean if you're it's even less if you're carrying a PS, psd that that firebomb UAS pilots need to have more than just UAS experience that's i think a really important one i think having the fire crews be able to talk the UAS language and have the UAS crews talk the fire language is really important for the communication, and I, that's got to be done ahead of the time. That's gonna. That's really rough if you're learning it as the events occurring. So I, I think Max. Um, overall, I think the challenges are not unsurmassable that they've brought up in the article. It's just a matter of um, more preparation and learning.
0: And I have the impression that the the firefighting industry will share these. These lessons learned, uh, share these these concerns and these benefits, the challenges and the benefits, and you know will as an industry uh, make this even more effective. I think it's really really exciting that uh, UAS have such value in in the uh, in the role of firefighting or supporting firefighting efforts. And as I say, I, I, I'm sure the industry will come together and make it even more valuable as a tool. And of course, with all the, the wildfires we've had in, in this country and in some other countries, um, you know, being able to get on top of these things and respond quickly and effectively is just critically, critically important. So yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm really optimistic about this one.
1: It's only been a couple of years, Max, where we were talking about, you know, if you fly, they can't and here now we're we're having drones the the turn has been made where it, the drones are a positive over these wildfires and not a, neg- a not a negative so thankfully fire season's almost over hopefully hopefully next year we won't have as much of a fire season though probably we will but hopefully this will this technology will continue to improve in this space yeah yeah so
0: we got a notice from Skyward Max Right. Lance update, refined airspace grids and night drone authorizations. So the FAA has a a new uh, version, the latest uh, generation of the low altitude authorization and notification capability, also called Lance, which uh, introduces some new things. Uh, Authorization requests for nighttime drone flights in controlled airspace, uh, as well as refined airspace grids. And so uh, Skyward customers can uh, now request automated and near real-time access to these controlled airspace for any time of day. And they can also request higher-altitude LANCE authorizations in portions of controlled airspace. So this all is LANCE version 5.0. And as you probably will recall, Skyward is one of the seven FAA-approved Lance UAS service suppliers. And we'll have some links to the Skyward web platform where you can get the next generation of this. And also the the Skyward in-flight mobile app, which they have for iOS and Android. And uh, they also note that the, the mobile app, they've revamped that. Uh, so it has an all-new design. So... They're uh, making improvements in the user interface there as well. So that's that's great to hear.
1: So I think Max, we, we're done. Um, I, I think we can wrap it up for another month. you know, No, no folks, we're, we're, we're not going to be taking off another month. We will be here next week with all sorts of news. So I guess I want to say, I guess this will wrap it up and we'll say thank you very much for listening. You can find Max and I on LinkedIn, on Facebook on Twitter, and you can all find those links on our website, theuavdigest.com. That's right. And if you want to
0: go to the show notes for this episode, you can get there directly by visiting theuavdigest.com slash 385. And we've got links to all the the, uh, stories that we talked about. Uh, You'll find some other resources there. And the videos that we mentioned, the autonomous agile flight, and also the video about the Schneider Springs fire. Both of those are really, really interesting videos worth looking at.
1: So with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max, back in Connecticut for a week anyway. See you next week, and thanks for listening.